in three, two, one. Trust is the foundation of all relationships. My guest today will share his proven trust building process to help you create instant rapport quickly and establish long lasting relationships personally and professionally. You'll learn practical strategies and insights that you can apply immediately to build trust and confidence in any relationship. So get ready to take notes and learn from one of the best in the business. Join me now for my conversation with Larry Jacobson. Well, hi, Larry. Welcome to the program. We're delighted to have you. And thank you very much for having me. It's much appreciated. Now, where are we speaking to you from today? Where are you at? I'm in Chicago. Good old Chicago. Good sports team. And just in our earlier chat, we were chatting about hockey and all the different sports teams that you have there. And I mean, you've had a city of champions, really. You've got basketball. You've had some really great moments in sports. And so Chicago's a good town, good restaurants. How do you not like Chicago? So it's one of our institutions as far as sports are concerned. But now you've been a practicing attorney for what three or four decades, and you worked as a transitional attorney. You worked as a specialist primarily, but you've written a book and we're here to really talk about your book called Insta Trust, And it's about how do we create trust quickly and establish it quickly, because it typically can take time to build trust. And we don't always have that amount of time. So let's start with a little background. How did you get here? How does a lawyer focused on transitions and succession planning and with law firms and different sized businesses, all of a sudden write a book on Insta Trust? What led you to that? The genesis has to start, oh, a good 12, 13 years ago when I decided that I wanted to get my doctorate. And so I decided to get my doctorate in leadership. But as a condition for me accepting my going to doctoral school, I said I need to have wide berth in terms of what I write my dissertation on. Right. And I wanted to write my dissertation on some level of negotiations. And my university, Creighton University, also has master's program in negotiation. And so what I did is my doctoral advisor taught in the negotiation program. And what I wanted to write on was very simply how we build trust, fast trust in negotiating with other significant parties when we don't meet with them face to face. Keep in mind, this was eight years before COVID, but in my professional experience, I would negotiate with people all over the world and would have to figure out who they are, never meeting them. And keep in mind, Back then, there was very little in the way of video chat. This was primarily by phone and email. And so I decided that was my doctoral thesis. And as part of the doctoral thesis, I interviewed 18 experienced negotiators and really asked them how they built trust very, very quickly in their negotiations. And I, I had a very wide range of responses, although there were some common themes and we can get into this later. But one individual, a good friend, a senior executive for the Chicago Cubs, and a fabulous negotiator said something that stuck with me and basically is the genesis of the book and the genesis as to how I've been conducting my own professional life now for the last nine or 10 years. And it's very simple. His comment was, you take them as you find them. And what he meant was, there's no way I can change your personality. There's no way I can change your decision-making style. There's no way I can change your risk tolerance. What I have to do is to find out what those are and adapt and adjust to those. And that was the genesis of the book. 
And that's the genesis of instant trust and the approach of building fast trust. You basically have to take them as you find them, and you've got to figure out what basically moves them. Well, that's definitely interesting. In today's world, we have Zoom, we have GoToMeeting, we have Skype, all kinds of video vehicles and tools in which we can meet somebody, we can see their body language, we can interact with them if we can't get with them in, on a face-to-face -face basis. So being able to establish and build trust just off of a phone call, everything else has probably got a little easier. There's more variables to it. So what you're saying is, as we find them, we don't know. And matter of fact, that's the introduction of your book where you talk about no one really knows. You never know what you're dealing with. You tell the story of a surgeon in your book and hiring a surgeon or going through a process. When we meet someone, we don't know what they're feeling, what they're thinking, what their mindset is. And so we have to sort of match them, get on the same page with them and do that in a very quick order, right? Right. Interesting topic. It's huge for pretty much everybody because I've always believed that trust is the foundation of all relationships. We can have relationships without trust, but we'll always lose to one where trust exists. So the better the trust, the better the relationship, which leads to better win-win outcomes. So if trust is the outcome, and that's chapter one of your book, which also leads to your income, so clever title of the chapter. I know you developed a personality archetypes. You've got over 11 of those that you talk about. How does it start? So let's say we were on that phone call. How do you build that trust quickly? Well, the one thing you cannot do initially is determine their credibility. And when I talked about my dissertation, and I do mention this in the book, you really can't tell at the outset whether the other person is truthful and credible. I mean, that only comes out later. But what you can find out is whether they're competent and whether or not they're what I call other-centered, meaning they care about you. And so the whole purpose of trying to develop trust quickly with somebody that you've never interacted before is not coming off as clinical or diagnostic. I mean, we all probably have examples of going to a doctor and the doctor comes in and basically just starts asking a whole bunch of clinical, technical questions and really doesn't start out with what I think they should ask in the first sense is what's on your mind or what brings you here today? How right. can I help? Not start bombarding you with technical questions. Because if you start the process by saying, how can I help? Or what's on your mind? You're at least starting the process by showing that you're really interested in that. Right. And this isn't a schmoozing interest in them. This is what's bringing you here today. And what are you trying to accomplish, so to speak? And then really how they react to that simple question can be very, very helpful in then determining their personality archetype and what have you. Am I dealing with somebody who's scared? Am I dealing with somebody who's knowledgeable? Do I have to drag things out of them? Are they close to the vest? So on and so forth. But the key to me is basically just starting out with simple, non-technical interactions that really try to get to the root as to what we're trying to accomplish in a very personable manner. Yeah. And you list questions in there and questions we can ask and which help set the stage for that too. So there's some very practical and applicable tips inside the book in which people can use. You actually give them the verbiage in which they can start that process with questions. How important is rapport in that process? As we build relationships of trust, often it starts with rapport and building rapport quickly. And do you have any strategies as far as how do I form that alignment? The meeting first starts, or if it's a first meeting situation or a first phone call or Zoom meeting to establish that rapport, how much time we should spend on developing rapport or any tips or secrets to enhance that rapport? That's a great question. And there's no simple or easy answer. Some people who come primarily from a sales background will say, try to find 
common interest? Did you go to the same school or do you know somebody? You know, sure. Something like that. And I think that's actually helpful, but I don't think it's helpful at the very, very beginning. It could be helpful towards the end when hopefully you've cemented some professional relationship or objective. I think that rapport is incredibly important. And yes, you can do a deal and have zero rapport with the other side. I mean, professional sports, you have collective bargaining agreements between teams and leagues where I can tell you having represented a professional sports team before, there's zero rapport and frankly, there's zero trust. So that's why those agreements are four to 500 pages long because neither side trusts anybody. But then you contrast that with a situation where you do build a personal rapport. You listen, the other person sees that you're listening. There are three things that I say at the moment. Listen, follow up, and show empathy. And if you listen, and then your follow-up questions are germane to their situation, both from a non-technical and from a personal standpoint, and you show empathy for them, that's how you can build rapport quickly. And that really can help the relationship start off on the right foot. Those are excellent points. And to be able to listen to them, and we always maintain we should listen three ways, listen to what they're saying, their words, listen to what they mean, and listen to what they need. So you really have to be actively listening to it. And you actually have that as one of the elements inside your book. You give different questions, seven questions, and what we can ask ourselves. And question two is, am I willing to spend at least two-thirds of an initial interaction and listening rather than talking? Often we spend too much time talking about our features or benefits of a product or a service that we're offering, and not enough time just asking a high-value question and then listening to what the responses are. What you're saying is listen, follow up with that question. So it shows and demonstrates you're listening and then show some empathy that, Hey, I understand. I can understand how that'd be frustrating. Doesn't mean agreement necessarily identify it, but it does mean that I'm understanding you. I hear you. I see you. Here's the challenge. If we're a professional or a salesperson, we have the technical knowledge, right? And you know, when we've gone through our training, whether it's in law school or medical school or dental school or MBA programs, it really doesn't matter. We're taught really to be really great at what we do technically. We're not taught how to interact with people on their level. And right. what is important in terms of building fast trust is that we really spend as much time making them feel comfortable with us. If we can make them feel comfortable with us, then we can gradually and surgically, for lack of a better phrase, start asking germane questions as to what the root causes of the problem. And you made a comment a moment ago, they may think they know what they need, but they may not exactly know what they need. But you can't get to explaining needs and options and all until they feel comfortable sharing with you on a personal level. And by the way, that's true even in high stakes negotiations involving millions of dollars, even billions of dollars. Because at the end of the day, the other side has to feel that A, you want to work with them. B, you're going to show how you want to work with them and that you're going to be able to deliver the goods. So, I mean, even where you're dealing with jaded deal makers, as opposed to a 65-year-old senior citizen going to see a medical specialist for the first time. Really doesn't matter. You've got to develop some sort of relationship where I like to say, are you willing to go to war with me? I mean, right. now that's, that's interesting. A, that, now yeah. that's, 
Now, now that's, that's an extreme metaphor. But even in a high-stakes negotiation, are we willing to go into the trenches with each other? That's the type right. of attitude that you have to try to convey in terms of your initial interactions. Yeah, it's interesting. I know the book was written for professionals. I mean, a lot of focus was on there, but quite frankly, the principles work right across the board. What you're talking about in using the medical example is uh, developing a bedside manner. So you go see the doctor, you don't, hey, what'd you have for breakfast? Tell me about your family history. And they're getting you in and out in 15 minutes. Here, go pee in a cup and we'll let you know. You want them to know about you as an individual. How are you doing? How are you feeling? And that's the emotional intelligence issue. That comes from experience. And you're right. They don't teach that in special schools. They don't teach that period. And these are things that we learn and we figure out, which make a difference. What are the biggest mistakes that people make in your mind, Larry, when it comes to meeting a prospect or a client for the first time? So they meet somebody first time, they make errors or you see this error happen a lot. What would you say that is? What I would say very simply is somebody comes into your office, you shake hands, you know, you're seated and all. Most of the time you have some ideas to why they're there. I mean, you may not know exactly why they're there, but if you're a doctor, when somebody made the appointment, they gave some information to the person making the appointment and all. So the initial, I'll use a doctor. Let's assume I have a pain on my right side. And so the doctor's first question is, tell me about the pain on your right side. If you're going to a dentist for the first time, what might be, tell me about where your teeth are. Well, precisely what's bothering you, as opposed to a more holistic approach that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago in terms of thanks for coming in. And generally speaking, by the way, very few doctors, dentists, lawyers, accountants, salespeople, whatever, start with thanks for coming in today. They just get to they just get to it in terms of the diagnostics, so to speak. So right there, you're kind of behind the eight ball because you're coming off as a cold technocrat and you're not coming off as a human being. I mean, just something as simple as thanks for coming in, that just makes a big, big difference as to how you start off the conversation. Sure. Hey, thanks for coming in. Our goal today is going to be to help you. We're going to fix, we're going to do an x-ray. Here's what we're going to do. And our goal is to get you out the door, whether it was a medical doctor or a dentist or whatever professional you're seeing. With the issue in hand, we understand it. We're going to look after it. We're going to take care of you. And that goes a long way. Well, you basically just took the words right out of my mouth. You had a podcast where towards the end of the podcast, you were talking about a dentist who follows up after the procedure and asks how things are. When I work with professionals, I recommend that they do the same thing. But one of the things that I also recommend to them relatively early on in their initial conversation is to basically let people know what you're going to be doing, what the conversation is going to be, you know, what the process is, and so on and so forth. So if I were to go to a dentist for the first time, and if I were the dentist, I would say, so here's how we work with our patients. We do this, that, the other thing, but before we start anything, we always ask you questions about how you're feeling, what your views are in terms of pain, Novocaine, so on and so forth. We're asking you questions that relate to you. We're not telling you that this is how we do things. What we're doing is this is how we're doing things for you. Yeah, we're informing. We call that bringing them inside. So what we do is we share with them our process. 
So from a sales coach point of view, first thing we do is we have these conversations to even see if we're on the same page and because we're not a fit for everyone. I do what's called the takeaway. Right. Hey, we're not a fit for everyone. We're going to find out though in this conversation whether we are. Then we'll do an exploratory. Hey, do we have enough to move forward? Do we have enough to go and explore potential solutions to your issues and whatever those issues are? Once we do that, we do our analysis and we'll walk them through the process, just like you said. So, hey, what we're going to do is we're going to look into your mouth. We're going to take some x-rays. We're going to take a picture, all painless. And then we're going to take a look and we'll take, see what we can fix today. If there's something we can do quickly, or we need to do some molds, we'll have you come back and we'll take care of it. You can sit there and relax. You can watch TV on the roof, or we can send you on a little trip for the next 30 minutes or so. Your call. And you walk them through then the comfort zones there. So what you're saying is walking through the process, because a lot of times when we think trust, we think, why don't people trust us? Why don't they trust us? And trust has to be earned, but trust can be earned right. by addressing their concerns and anticipating what those concerns are, right? Anticipation is huge and key. I'll stick with the dental example. I remember walking in London a few years ago, and I saw a storefront dental office called Panless Dentistry. That was the name of the practice. Hmm. Wow. Wow. So many medical and dental professionals have generic names and so on and so forth. Somebody losing, they basically got to the root cause of why people hate to go to the dentist. My daughter hates to go to the dentist. Yeah. And she avoided it for many, many years because she found it very, very painful. So if I'm a dentist, or even if I'm a physician, relatively early on showing empathy in terms of the process as to how we can deal with physical pain, obviously in an ethical manner, is very, very important because frankly, getting back to what is on their mind, but what they may not want to come out and say right away is, how are you going to make my pain go away? Right. This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions, featuring Active Campaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? Active Campaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e commerce, B2C, and B2B companies, gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. Active Campaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose Active Campaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the Active Campaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. And now back to my conversation with Larry Jacobson. As part of the key to building trust, one of the things that you teach is that we should be constantly monitoring how we come across to the other side in our initial interactions when we're having interactions. So if we're focused on actually interacting, we're reading them, we're reading, because like you say, you don't know where your starting point is. We have to inquire and figure those kinds of things out. How can we do that kind of internal multitasking, if you will, where we're monitoring? How do we monitor how we're coming across and how do we know if we're accurate, if we're right? Experience. Frankly, I've said before that even for experienced professionals, if they could have somebody else observe them, it's not uncommon in the medical and dental field for younger interns. dental specialists or interns, residents coming in to observe. You've got to be honest with yourself and you can't be egotistical. Using an intern or a resident or a younger 
associate to monitor how you're coming across is a very powerful way of self-assessing. Because we do it for the younger physicians and dentists and attorneys, where the senior partner is the one evaluating the younger person or whatever. But I think we have to be egoless enough to allow ourselves to be observed by others. The other thing that I will say is there is nothing wrong with writing notes while you're interacting. And let's assume the other person's sitting right in front of you. There's nothing wrong with taking notes. You just don't want to be viewed as taking notes during the entire conversation because then you won't pick up valuable nonverbal cues. And frankly, the nonverbal cues can be as important, if not more important, than the verbal cues, whether it's tone, whether it's crossing your arms, you know, right. fold your legs, the pauses, short, curt answers, even though that's both a verbal and a nonverbal cue. You really can see how things are going as much, if not more, by observing the nonverbal cues as opposed yeah. to the words. Which you don't have on a telephone call. So you've got to look at tonality. You've got to look at what's actually being said. And you're missing 90% of the battle by not having those visual cues when you have a chance to observe somebody. So monitoring, self-awareness is important. Am I doing all the talking? Maybe a little reflection after each call and go, how could I have made that call better? And those are good questions to ask yourself. You introduced a concept called, how do we display quiet confidence? and throughout our interactions. And I like the term quiet confidence. Explain that, unpack that a little bit for us. What's quiet confidence? Sure. I mean, unfortunately, for better or for worse, we now live in a society where everything is demonstrative and everything is in the functional equivalent of capital letters, whether it's actually written or spoken, so to speak. But if you think In the past, if anybody who's listening to this thinks about the doctor or the attorney or the dentist who really resonated with them as somebody not only listened to them, but was really good at what they did. They came up not with a a bragging type personality, but basically a personality where they answered your questions with confidence. They didn't basically make you think like it was a dumb, stupid question. They basically explain things away. I'll give you a perfect example. I mean, I had both my knees replaced and the surgeon who did my knee replacements, who's now retired from surgery, is world-renowned. Literally, people came in from all over the world to have their knees and hips replaced by him. And I'm a relatively educated guy. And so when we had our first meeting, I asked him a variety of questions and he didn't talk down to me. He didn't make me feel like I was feeling stupid or foolish or what have you. When I asked him a question, which was not a normal question that people would ask him, he acknowledged, he acknowledged, I don't get that question very often. Let me take a moment to think about it. And by the way, that is, if you were to ask in terms of quiet confidence, that's one of the things that shows quiet confidence, that you don't think you're such a know-it-all, that if somebody asks you a question that you're not prepared for, You basically say that that's interesting. Let me think about it. Give me a minute and what have you. That shows a sign of somebody who's confident because somebody who's a BSer will just (laughs) answer off the top of their head without regard to whether or not it's the right answer for you. But the person who's quietly confident is confident enough to know that they don't know everything, but If, in fact, it's a question that's relevant or germane, they will get back to you with the answer after giving it some thought. Yeah, I've been guilty of that one myself. 
in the past. So I try and work on that one all the time where it's like, you want to give them an answer and help, but if I don't have it, I'll say, Hey, great question. Let me get back to you on that. And then I use it as a point of follow-up. So I actually look for those opportunities to, Hey, in answering your question, because every time I want to interact with them, I want to bring them some value in that conversation. So I always believe in empathy first when I'm talking, Hey, I get you. I understand you. I see you. I understand your issues value. Here's what I've got for you. That might help with those issues. And then what's a call to action, a phone call, a meeting, an exploration proposal, whatever it's going to be. So it all stems in part of that, but I like that on the quiet. We don't need to brag about ourselves. I like what you say about trust and confidence and building it quickly. What I do when I go into meetings, and this is just my strategy and tactic is when I go see a VP, let's say you're a VP of sales, you're a CEO, I already know you're going to challenge me somewhere along the way, just because that's usually the story. So the first thing I do is I bring a couple of copies of my books and I immediately sit down, I shake hands and I can tell that they're going to challenge me. And the first thing I do is I say, Oh, hey, listen, Larry, I took the liberty of bringing a couple of copies of my books. I said, this one was a bestseller. My mom bought a lot of them. I brought you one from the supply and I pull out a Sharpie and I go, I'm happy to personalize it for you if you don't mind. But I said, it's not worth something until I'm gone. Sort of like a dolly painting. And they always laugh and they chuckle. And then I hand them a couple of copies of my books. Well, right away, they open up right away. They're like, oh, this is nice. Thanks very much. And we get talking about it, but it changes their whole tone. And they're less likely to beat me up at that point because I've invoked what I call a trigger of reciprocity. I've given them a gift and also the trigger of credibility. And I just do it as a fun thing. And it really goes a long way. And it just does. Then they'll talk about the books and we'll use that as a transition. Maybe it's something in their office, but then I'm always starting with whatever their issues are. And that's how I do it in order to build that trust and credibility quickly. I'll give you one other, just the extreme of that. When I started my speaking career, I was really young looking. So I was in my twenties and I really never shaved till I was 22, like regularly. And I got in front of an audience and the first thing they're looking at me and going, what are you doing in here? You're young whippersnapper. Like, what have you got that's of any value to me? So the first thing I do is I'd pull up my driver's license and I say, first of all, I want you all to know I'm old enough to drive and, be, and I hold up my driver's license. And I've been shaving for two years, which they would chuckle. And I say, and I haven't cut myself either time. And now they're having a good roar over that. And now I bring them in and we begin the conversation and we start talking. So I address the weakness first which goes to the trust and the credibility. One of the things which we teach salespeople today is to address the negative expectations, the things that we're not so right. good at, right out of the gate. In other words, we show the vulnerability. Instead of saying we're wonderful, we're the number one in our markets, we're the best, we've been voted number one. Hey, we're really good at this. We're not really good at this. We've made some mistakes here, which we've learned from, and share those errors, those costly mistakes, if you will. And that tends to go a lot to the trust building. Is that something you would you know, agree with? I'm smiling because in the book, we talk about two potential type archetypes that might apply with what you just said. It could be the tough nut, somebody who really does want to get something done. They ask tons of questions and they can be very difficult in terms of that. But then we talk about the egomaniac, the CEO, the CFO type that frankly is so used to people talking up to them and really they like to listen to themselves and what they have to say. And so I'm assuming you're talking about the egomaniac. Right. And what I would do with the egomaniac type, and nine times out of 10, you probably know that they're an egomaniac even before you walk into the room, whether you've done your due diligence on them before the meeting or what have you. And what I like to do is to basically say, look, my job is to make you look good. And by golly, we're going to find a way to make you look good. 
here's what I can do. And this is an exception to a lot of the things I've said earlier in terms of showing empathy and so on and so forth. But if you're dealing with a ludomaniac, it's very important that you need very, very quickly to let them know that you're there to help serve them and help solve their problem. But I say, but there's a catch. The catch is that we're going to treat each other with respect and we're not going to play any games and we're going to work as partners and collaborate to solve your problem because at the end of the day, I look good if I make you look good. And that's how you build trust with somebody who's, in my experience, that's an egomaniac. I'll give you one very short example. I had obviously had a professional relationship with this person, but I'm on a cruise ship in the Caribbean with my wife. This is like 2003, 2004. I had done a lot of very, very good work for a very, very large client. We're sitting on the pool deck and I'm being, so I go back to my room and I pick up the phone and the person, CFO of our biggest client said, Larry, this is Steve. I've got a real issue that I need you to take care of immediately. Okay. And I didn't even have to say, Steve, you know where I am because you knew exactly where I was and where we were right. a cruise ship. And I said, Steve, I'm glad to help you. And I'll spend the next day or two helping you. But I want you to know when I get off the ship, I'm going to spend an extra two days at the Four Seasons on your nickel. And he laughed and he got it because he wanted something out of the ordinary for me. And I delivered it. But he also needed to understand that he was going to have to show reciprocity in terms of that. If we didn't have a trusting relationship where he knew that I was going to do what needed to be done to make him look good. On the other hand, he knew that he was taking me away from vacation and that he had to make it up to me. You, you raise an interesting point there. We treat some of these people as if they're up on a pedestal. And if we realize that they put their pants on the same way we do and treat them as a normal, in other words, you defer to them, say, hey, listen, this is going to happen just as if you're talking to a peer. And that's one of the things which I've learned talking with the C-suite executives that a lot of times, the more that you see them maybe boisterous or acting in an egotistical way or whatever, those are just defense mechanisms in which they feel protected, right? That's where they project. But if by treating them like a peer and not being shaken by any of that or that authority, I've met top leaders all the way down the food chain. I like the way that you're talking to those different archetypes or personality styles to where you have to adjust your approach to each of those different archetypes. And some of there's overlap for sure. So it's like, if you're being empathetic, that's going to go good with an amiable personality. Somebody who's maybe in HR, they want to know the feelings, right? But if you're talking to somebody in leadership who typically worked hard to get there, you're going to deal with ego issues. Yes. And the other person that you can encounter, and this is true in the corporate world, I'm not even talking about doctors and lawyers, is the novice. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you literally have to educate the person that you're with, and it can take a long time. And patience is generally not something that most professionals or senior managers have. But sometimes you just have to say, It's important for me to spend as much time with this person and explain what's going on, what we thought should be happening, when it should be happening, and so on. And that's how you show to them, frankly, 
you're not just listening, but empathy. So not everybody that we're dealing with is knowledgeable or, or what have you. We have to sometimes have the patience. And that's hard because we're trained in this world that time is money and that there's a limit as to how much time we can spend with people and all. But one thing that I will say that I learned pretty early on in my career is spending a little bit more time with somebody at the beginning of a relationship will pay heavy dividends towards the end because you don't have to spend as much time reinventing the wheel. Well, I would agree with that. That's the time that is worse, but that's what sets the stage, I think, for the relationship. You teach that there are four key elements of InstaTrust. Let's unpack that a little bit. It starts with relationship building, a meeting setting, and then establishing that quiet confident persona, and then speed. You've addressed a couple of them already, but did we miss anything in any of that? No, I mean, <laughs> there are different definitions or discussions of instant trust in the book. What I focus on is we've got a diagram called wheels of instant trust that basically is keyed off of three core values. First, credibility and competence. It could be that quiet confidence, but also, and we really haven't talked about this, but let's make no mistake about it. You've got to be damn good at what you do, because if you're not damn good at what you do, you could be the most personable person in the world, and the amount of trust that you're going to build is going to be negligible. I said a few minutes ago that people can't necessarily understand or figure out your integrity in a few minutes, but they generally can figure out whether you're competent or not. They can generally figure out, even if they're not an expert whether you give out the vibe that you know what you're talking about. Well, you talk about that, the communication skills, your self-confidence all goes to the credibility and the confidence. That's the questions right. you ask. Just the right. intelligence of the questions you ask all go to that. And then emotional connectors. Right. And that's where we get to things like gratitude, your attitude. Do you come off as somebody who's a peer? Basically, even right. though we all know that you're the expert in the room, and the people are hiring you or hopefully going to hire you for your expertise, but you have to show that you can act as a peer. That gets back to what I said before, is this person somebody who's willing to go to war with me? Is that somebody that I can rely on? Can I trust that they're going to get the job done and do what I need to get done? And then the final part of the wheels are shared values. And that's everything from charm factor, how you interact, to using stories and getting back to our immediate prior conversation, reciprocal discussions or intentions. Really, how can we, again, make it feel? Because the key to all of this at the end of the day is to make the other person feel like you're going to be partners in a journey to do something. Be a medical problem, be a dental problem, be a legal problem. It could be outside in business, a software problem, a business solution, whatever. You have to be able, in terms of building into trust, you have to be able to show relatively quickly that that is your mindset. Your mindset is I am here to work with you as a partner to get something done. You call that a collaborative mindset and how it can put a customer or client at ease by letting them know you're working focused on that goal. But it's interesting you say this. I have a question I ask, and the question I was taught by Dan Sullivan, who's a coach with the Strategic Coach Program is his, and I learned this question 25, 30 years ago. It's a million-dollar question, and I ask it of executives. So if I came to meet you quickly at first, one of the first questions I would ask you is this. I'd go, Larry, thanks for having us come in and take a look at your business and your operations. Our only goal is to provide perfect 
fantastic solutions for our clients. Your business is way too important for us to guess. So we prepared some questions that we'd like to ask you, which will help us focus our time today and then make a determination if there's something we should be talking about or addressing. Mind if I ask you a few questions? And you go, yeah, no, go ahead, ask the question. So the first question I ask is, I want you to imagine, Larry, now we're in 2023, I want you to imagine 2026. I want you to go three years out into your future. I want you to look back now at the last three years. What needs to occur for you professionally for you to be happy about the progress or your progress? And it could be personal or professional. I might change the wording. And then I shut up. Now, there's only three answers to the question. The first answer is, I don't know, which tells me they're not forward thinking or visionary, which I can't really help them, which doesn't come up very often. Number two, they can say, none of your business, which I've had happen twice. And both times when that happened, I close up my book and I stand up and I offer my hand to say, well, our time's up. Thank you. And I haven't even got into the meeting. They look at me and they go, did I say something offensive or did I offend? I said, no, no. I asked you that question because there's only three answers and I'm really interested in all three of them, but one of them I can help you with. Number one, you don't know which case you're not visionary. You didn't say that. Number two, none of your business, which means you don't trust me. If you can't trust me, let's stop right now. And just because we're not going to go there. Or number three, you're going to know where you want to be three years from now. And the reason we want to know that is our only goal as an organization is to close the gap between where you are today and where you want to be three years from today. And that's it. And we'll tailor and create a bespoke program or service or product for you, education program, whatever it is, to help you close that gap. And we'll be your partner and we'll tell them what we're going to do. I'm just chuckling because a phrase that I use with my clients literally every week is find the gap. So there are two elements. And by the way, this is probably going to be my next book, but find the gap because frankly, we don't give enough thought to where we're at and where we want to be. So the second thing is solve the gap or close. But you can't close the gap until you found what the gap is, what the root causes are, and also given a lot of thought as to where you want to be. Because you can't have a gap until you know where you want to be. Right. And so you've got to know where you are, where you want to be, what the root causes are, and then you can solve as to how we close that gap. How do we navigate it? What are the obstacles? And really, right. that's it. And it's understanding when we win business, we always ask clients, why did we win it? So some clients are just happy to win and go, hey, I guess we lucked out. Ours was the best presentation. I actually really want to know. So I'll call up and I'll go, Larry, thank you for giving us the work. We really enjoy working with your company. I have to ask you though, what made you pick us? You were looking at different options. What made you pick us? And routinely they say this, they go, because you really wanted it. I said, what do you mean? They said, you really asked for it. You really wanted it. It meant something to you and your company. And that's what we were looking for. And in my process, I do, I call it the Jerry Maguire. Remember in the movie, he's right. he's down to Cuba Gooding Jr., his last right. representation of the football player. And Cuba's going, I'm not feeling the love in Jerry. And he goes, okay, I will walk on broken glass for you. I will do this for you. I will do this for you. I will actually tell a client and show the vulnerability. I'll say, listen, towards the end of the meeting, we've done our homework on your organization, on your culture, and what you're doing and what your accomplishments are. We think we'd be an awesome partner. We would love to be your partner. This is right in our wheelhouse, and we love this kind of work. It's exciting. It's motivating. We get excited and passionate about it. We really hope you pick us. We really hope you pick us. If you don't pick us and you end up picking someone else, sometimes that doesn't always work out well. And sometimes clients feel bad about coming back and right. saying, hey, because they didn't choose this the first time. Don't feel bad about coming back to us. It happens frequently. It happens a lot. They make a choice, they go somewhere else, but then they end up come back. We're here to help you. That's our only goal. 
is to get from A to B. If you're not getting it with A, please come back with B. There's no judgment. We'll get there. We want to be your number one. We want to be your preferred provider. And that alone, that's how I set the stage with that. That's telling them we're more concerned about helping them with their issues. And if not, I ask for a second spot and I go, hey, We'd love to be your backup provider in the event of they don't meet or exceed expectations, then we can step up to bat. And I think you'd agree it makes good business sense. And they do. They go, yeah, that makes good business sense. And we've got that. So I usually win the business the first time, or if we don't win it this time, we get it very shortly thereafter or within the next year. But you're right. It goes to the trust, the credibility, and identifying what their gaps are and that you're there and committed to help them on a collaborative basis. And I do the same thing. When I do get to this, I always ask why. And generally, it's a combination of three or four things. I'm a great listener. I show knowledge. I really can admit that I know, you know what I'm talking about in terms of transitions and what have you. And I'm viewed as somebody who is easy to work with. Off of what I just said a minute ago, for a variety of reasons, I generally have to turn down four out of every five people who call me. If they have a practice to sell, it's either too small or it's in an area that I can't get people to go to or what have you. And I generally can tell that in the first five or 10 minutes. I don't have to ask a whole bunch of diagnostic questions. The person calling me will volunteer. And what I do is rather than say, I can't help you, have a nice day. What I will do, depending upon the person, is stay on the phone with them from anywhere from another 20 to 30 minutes and explain to them what they should do in terms of practicing until they retire, showing how they can frankly make a lot more money doing that than trying to sell, what steps you take when you close the dollar practice in terms of record retention and so on. So even though I know I'm not getting a penny's worth of business from them, I do feel an obligation to show some empathy to tell them what I think is in their best interest. And I will tell you, I've had more than one of those people that I've turned down that have referred business to me because they said he couldn't help me, but maybe he can help you. Or he helped to me the best he could within my constraints and he's there to give and you're coming from contribution and that's really the key when people understand that you're there for good reasons they'll work with you it's not just about the dollars anymore and we don't always learn that when we're in our youth it's all about the transaction but as we get a little older we add quality to what we do in our life we want good food we want good wine we want good relationships well and as you get to the point where you've developed some business maturity and you've got the experience it's really about the quality of those relationships as you know this is really really good stuff we could talk for hours on this the book is called insta trust the proven trust building process to create instant rapport and long-term relationships by larry jacobson larry we're going to have all your contact information in the show notes but what's the best place for people to find you I would say the best place to find me is just go to the website, protrustconsulting.com. Protrustconsulting.com. And we'll have that in the notes as well. And I know there's some free downloads for them. They can get a sample chapter of the book if they like. They can order the book. The book is available everywhere and can engage you and find information as well. This has been a treat. Always a pleasure talking to a professional and congratulations on the book. I think it's great. I think you're onto something with it. And with the generations today is we've got five generations of buyers out there in the marketplace and each generation fits into one of those archetypes that you list, you know, got over different 11 archetypes and you've got the ways in which to engage with them. So it's really a good how-to and lots of practical tips. And again, lots of tools to help you in specific situations or where you might need some help. So again, the book's InstaTrust with Larry Jacobson. Larry, thanks for being our guest. Michael, thank you very, very much. I've really enjoyed it. 
This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My executive producer is Beth Smith and director of research, Tori Smith. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting. This podcast is subject to copyright by Summit Media. Goodbye.